This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Well, welcome to Black and White. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey, author of the soon-to-be-published Black and White book, coming out from Nimbus Publishing in February 2022, just in time for Black History Month. Like my book, this podcast is intended to dig deeper into the reckoning of our times around systemic inequality, white advantage, which is my take on white privilege, and to really spur the discussion and raise awareness and like an article I wrote uh, last year, build bridges to understanding. So before we get going, I just want to, for all our listeners, here in Canada, we have a respectful tradition of a land acknowledgement. So if you're not in Canada listening, I'll just read that. And, um, and I find it's, it's a really nice way to, to honor and it's a gesture of reconciliation in regards to our Indigenous people. I'd like to acknowledge that we are recording in a studio in downtown Toronto on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I'm hopeful that black and white can become a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account, a podcast for the ally in all of us. Today, I have an amazing guest, and we're going to be tackling and diving into uh, some pretty uh, important topics, including Canada's mythology on race. And for those not in Canada, uh, <laughs> a Canadian uh, sport, which is uh, comparing ourselves to America. Uh, we're also going to talk about the impact of white advantage in our society. White advantage is what I, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, is my term for white privilege. And we'll share some lived experiences, which I, I hope will provide some insights for our audience. Since the reckoning that spurred by the George Floyd killing in the summer of 20, I've had hundreds of conversations with people in my community, people calling me, email me from around the world, and many asking, am I okay? How am I feeling? Uh, asking, what should they do? What should they say? And many of those conversations have happened on my walking around my community here in the West End of Toronto. And one of my favorite people in my neighborhood, uh, Pia Chattopadhyay, and I have had many conversations <laughs> over the past year and a half. And I'm so happy uh, that she's agreed to be my first guest on my first podcast. Uh, so I'd like to welcome Pia Chattopadhyay. Hi. Hi, Pia. Thanks for making the time. No problem. Happy to do this. So I, there's, I, I have 10 pages of notes of all your accomplishments. <laughs> Please don't. But, <laughs> exactly. But I am going to just orient our, our audience a little bit as to who you are, what you do. Sure. And, uh, well, who you are is an amazing person, but uh, a lot of people know you for your work in radio and television. Currently the host of Sunday Magazine, which is an amazing program that runs on the CBC every Sunday. 
uh, between 9 and 12, I believe. 9 and 11. 9 and 11. See, yeah, I, am I doing I, that right? Yeah, yeah, 9 and 11. Yeah, I like it so much, I listen for an extra hour. Uh, and uh, just amazing interviews with people, you know, from all walks of life, politicians, academics, uh, creatives. Uh, you had Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson on, and I love that. And you even included uh, one of your sons in, in that interview which, through a recording, which was wonderful. I encourage people to go and, and find you on, uh, on CBC Radio. You've had a long 20-plus year career. You've done other shows, Out in the Open, The Current. You've been on TVO, which is here in, in Ontario, TV Ontario. You've hosted. Um, but really, another interesting part is your journalistic background, and you were in the Middle East and all countries and reporting. want to hear more about that. Um, but really, um, and I, I'd be remiss, my sister Maureen in Vancouver, You, she is your number one fan. Oh, thanks. <laughs> right? Hey, Maureen. Not in a Stephen King kind of way. <laughs> Okay. So maybe, so welcome Pia and maybe tell us a little bit more about your professional journey and then we'll dive into that. Okay. So um, I'm a journalist in Canada and I've been broadcasting for more than two decades now, but my origin story starts uh, on the prairies. I was born and raised in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, so just due north of North Dakota, um, to a family. Uh, my parents immigrated from India in 1967, so a long time ago, um, and we'll probably talk about this, but the waves of Im immigration to our country and arguably elsewhere has have had many similarities, but also differences um, depending on when people came to this country. So I grew up on the prairies and then uh, moved out to Toronto in my 20s and then uh, started broadcasting mostly for the CBC, but I've done other things um, as well and lived in the Middle East in uh, based in Jerusalem for three years, worked for Fox News Radio, which <laughs> always gets... Um, <laughs> at least an eyebrow raise, if not more. But frankly, uh, I'm a journalist at heart. And so no matter who I work for, the kind of rules and my own sort of ethics and values are consistent and constant. So yeah, I host this great radio show, Sunday mornings, 9 to 11 uh, on CBC Radio here in Canada. You can get it on the internet, of course, if you don't uh, live here. But I've had um, a really great career. Um, some of that is by luck. Some of that is by skill and talent and hard work. And some of that is just people believing in me and um, me believing in myself, which I think is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you're, you know, I know you, you didn't put that in your bio here, but you're definitely one of the most respected uh, broadcast journalists in this country. So uh, I know I, you have my vote and the votes of millions of others. Interesting in, in your bio, you talked about an immigrant story from your parents from, who moved here from India. And, uh, and and interesting, you never once mentioned that you were a person of color. I guess, <laughs> right? I guess, you know, huh. See, got me out, caught me out already, right? Because, right? right. of course, like all countries, uh, there are people of many racial backgrounds. So, yes, we are actually, I am brown by description. <laughs> I am short. Um, and, um, yeah, my parents uh, originally come from uh, Calcutta, Bengal, um, and we speak Bengali. At home, I grew up speaking Bengali and English uh, in my home. I should also tell you... Um, that I'm married to a non-Bengali. I'm married to a white guy named Peter Armstrong. Um, and so we have biracial kids, which is um, super interesting, amazing, actually, for the most part, um, to raise kids from different cultural backgrounds in 2021. Of course. Well, we're going to get into that because I, too, have uh, married a, a white person and have essentially biracial children who look white. Yeah, mine so, too. Exactly. Snow so, white. Exactly. So we're going to talk about that. So uh, I was interested to, um, I'm always interested how 
immigrants decide to leave their country and come to really a country that's foreign to them completely. But not only that, your parents moved to Saskatoon. So <laughs> for those who, this is basically in the, the, the prairies north of Montana and North Dakota. And so w- why did they do that? Why did they choose Saskatoon? Yeah, um, they actually didn't start in Saskatoon. They started in a North Battleford, which is a small a city. And I say that in quotes because how cities define Saskatchewan is quite small. Uh, and then they quickly moved to a town called Unity, Saskatchewan, which I don't even know how many people were there at the time, but it was like definitely in the hundreds. That's it. So my parents tell all these stories, you know, um, some hard and some wonderful that when they arrived uh, in Unity, Saskatchewan in uh, the cold months uh, <laughs> of a Canadian prairie winter, um, people used to ring their doorbells their doorbell at the place they were staying because they, at that time, would walk, would ring the doorbell and my dad or mom would answer the door and they'd say, oh, I've never seen an Indian like you. Wow. And what they were saying is that they, of course, knew Indigenous people who at that time, of course, were also referred to as Indians. Um, and that really, um, it, on one hand, heartened my parents that people would reach out, I think is how they would put it, but also frighten them, <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, which is the duality of all this stuff. But really, uh, my parents have an amazing um, immigration story unto themselves, which is my mom was a nurse uh, back in India. She had a boyfriend who she'd been dating for four years. And her friends were mostly a year ahead of her in nursing college. And many of them had come to Canada. And they said, it's great. Why don't you come to Canada? And she had graduated a year after them. And um, she thought, I'm going to go to Canada. And... So she asked her boyfriend at the time, and he was like, what? what? It's 1960s India. Like, this is, this is quite unheard of stuff. My mom's quite a trailblazer even to um, offer that up at that time. And I think my dad said, no, 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 yes, yes, no, you know, waffled for a while. And um, then he agreed to go, and they were supposed to come for a year and then head back to India. And both their families said to us, look, no one comes back <laughs> once you go. Uh, so do us the favor and get married. And so they did. And uh, so they got on a flight and my mom arrived and dad arrived first uh, uh, through Montreal and then onwards to Saskatchewan. Uh, all her friends who she was coming to be surrounded by lived in Ontario. Of course, of course. <laughs> so this thing, people are like, well, didn't she look? I'm like, it's 1960s. And, it, you know, she really saw it as such an opportunity that it didn't really matter at the end of the day. But there they were. Two Indians, you know, spoke English really well, but with, at the time, again, we call them accents. Of course. Um, in the middle of a snow-white Canadian prairies. Yeah. And the and the, over the years, the stories of their early days as, obviously, um, they stood out, <laughs> right? And employment and all of that. What uh, I always find, it's interesting, many immigrants, they the, the older generation, they kind of gloss over some of the stuff. But what, what is the reality that faced them? Yeah, they say they cried um, every day for two years. So our last name, I'll tell you a quick story. I, it's not actually that quick. Uh, but just to give you a sense of what they were uh, facing, and I think the story is kind of emblematic of the deeper challenges that immigrants still face today, but certainly in their time. So my dad grew up, his name is Prashanto uh, Chatterjee. He was always a Chatterjee's last name. And if you're familiar with that name, it's quite a common Indian Bengali name. Um, it goes back to when the British ruled India, and they changed the Chottopadhyays, which is our family name, 
to Chatterjee. Or there's Bandapaddai, which they changed to Banerjee. Or you've heard Mukherjee, which is Mukapaddai. And so my father grew up as a Chatterjee. And when he immigrated to Canada, he had you know provide documentation. And when they arrived in Canada, he had two... Uh, whatever, pieces of do- documentation. One said Chatterjee, one said Chotapadai. And the immigration person said, well, you're not, this This is not the same person. Exactly. You are two different people. They have to match. And my dad explained, look, they're very interchangeable. One is historically uh, Indian. One is, you know, a legacy uh, of the British uh, Raj. And they said, yeah, no, that's not going to work for us. And <laughs> yeah, so exactly. they had to get some confirmation. I don't know exactly how it worked, probably by telegram or something uh, back in the day. And... Um, he became a Chattopadai eventually. And people say, well, why do you say Chattopadai? <laughs> like, look, I grew up in exactly. the Canadian prairies in the 1970s and 80s. But it was really my sister, who's five years older than me, that kind of um, set the way, right? Like, she just anglicized her name. I always ask, like, when did you figure that out? And she doesn't really have a recollection. Like, she was just a kid and well, you're just the, trying to fit in. Exactly. These things happen. You want to connect, right? But, I mean, this is not a... a uh, the story of immigrants through Ellis Island changing their names, right? Yeah. Italians and Jewish people and changing, so Americanizing. I mean, it's it's a bit different, but... It, 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 you know, it's, it's so resonant. So just by another example, so my mom was a nurse, an operating room nurse, but worked on in many areas of a hospital when she first arrived in Canada. No, her name is Arti or Arti Chottopadaya. Okay, even if you anglicize that, which she, people call her now, Arati, Arti, Arthi, um, Chattopadai, right? Back in that day, they wouldn't even try to say Chattopadai. So she, or her first name. So she quickly uh, became known as Chatty. She's still known as Chatty. That's hilarious. All exactly. the way through her career. Yeah. She's almost 80 years old. Um, and it, I don't know what to say about it. Like people always ask me about my name and they say, you know, things that they feel are complimentary. They, and they are intended to be complimentary. Like with that, you have an interesting name or those kinds of things. Um, but we don't say that to the Peter Armstrongs of the world. No, no. Um, and I, I, I wonder how much we lose in a deeper way when we lose or change our names. Now, I argue, Stephen, that if I went on the air and said, hi, my name is Pia Chattopadhyay, I mean, no one would listen to what I say after that because they're so caught up on that. And I find it's a really um, individual choice. Yeah. Like, it's my name. Of course. And so, course. you know, Indians in Canada often say to me, oh, you mispronounce your name. I said, you, you can't actually mispronounce your own name. <laughs> you actually can't. It's well, my you, name. you know, the interesting thing is this flows into deeper conversation. We may get that to that today, but, you know, in the employment, right? So um, recently, about six months ago, I went through and was looking at resumes and, you know, a lot of Middle Eastern names and hyphenated names and uh, that I had difficulty pronouncing. And and but you know these are, are human beings and that's their names right and people are but we know that there's bias when people look at those resumes in terms of those names so names and culture and all of those things really play a role yeah. right and i always find it interesting when people say uh oh i'm sorry i i i i mispronounced your name and i'm like well look at it i mean it's it, it's it's very hard, it's difficult, right? The, the last four letters in my name are, in my last name are H-Y-A-Y. Now, if you speak English, that doesn't make any sounds except for hey, right? So if you look at that, but it's Chattopadai. Um, But I don't like when people don't try to say my name, and I don't care if you butcher it. Well, exactly. I think I tried to say uh, 
name one of the indigenous. Haudenosaunee. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. See, I, I keep tripping over it. So, but I'm going to learn it properly. You know, yeah. I find it interesting as we thankfully are more open um, to our indigenous languages and peoples that um, we're having to learn many new languages. And they're very different than maybe the more uh, uh, familiar international languages that we've come to know. At which, which we take pride when we go to Italy and go, ciao, <laughs> right? Everyone thinks, you know, or dos cerveza, por favor, right? <laughs> yeah. We should, we probably should be learning some of the language yeah. uh, of our indigenous people. And I think people are, I think there's a movement towards that. But I want to get back quickly to your parents and then I want to get to you and, and your sister and your experience. So your parents cried, as you said, and they, I'm sure they, you know, I'd love to hear some of the, the quick little stories about some of their challenges and how they were perceived. And of course, I'm sure there was discrimination and so on. And then maybe you can talk a little bit about how you navigated being a brown girl in Saskatchewan. Do we have hours? <laughs> <laughs> sure. As concise as okay. possible. But I think it's important for our audience to understand the realities of, you know, here you are. But And you said something just earlier. You said, I just made my way, right? I, I went. I knew I could do it. I knew I had good people there to help me. But I, I knew what I would do, and I pushed forward. Yeah. So I think, you know, you had said this earlier about maybe the older immig- immigrants, um, talk about it all being kind of rosy. My parents aren't that, but they certainly have a much more rosy, I think, telling of it than maybe their experience suggested. And, you know, they they were alone. Uh, it wasn't like there was a big Indian community. They were one of the first um, Indian Hindu uh, people in Saskatchewan. Settlers, I guess we'd call them in, in some ways. And so they built a really small community uh, in Saskatchewan with the other families that had come from India. Um, and it was tight. They were like family. So you know, my dad taught at a high school when he first came here as a scientist uh, by nature, eventually went on to uh, work at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. My mom was a nurse. But back then, I think when we think of race and racism, there was acceptance on all sides that you were just different and it is what it is. And so I think they were accepting along the way. Look, my parents are like really poster people, you know, for multiculturalism in Canada and, uh, you know, making all the sacrifices to leave your family and homeland to raise children so they can have a better life. My parents are deeply proud of what I do. Um, And it used to bug me because I was like, I just do, you know, everyone does something. And I've come to really um, accept and honor them by understanding for them, it's not about that I'm some broadcaster that, you know, has a public facing job, but for, for them in some ways, it's about them having done it. It's, it's an honor to them for me to accept that. Of, that I should be course. really proud um, through my work, of, but what we've achieved together. And without them, there is no me, there's nothing. No, exactly. Well, it's a great legacy, definitely. Yeah. So you like mentioned- Like a teary when I talk yeah, about Yeah, of course, things, yeah. of course. It's like- uh, they really paved the way, yeah. right? And so you mentioned your sister was the one that consciously, unconsciously kind of modified the family name for school. But really, it's about fitting in and belonging, right? I, I have a similar story, you know, as you know, I grew up in a white family, you know, uh, in a white neighborhood, went to white schools in Montreal, in the suburbs of Montreal, and then Victoria. And all my friends mostly, you know, I would say 90% were white. And that just was my reality. And and I never really thought of myself as Stephen the Black Kid, hmm. right? It was really, you know, of course I was reminded of it, yeah, right, in the schoolyards and and all kinds of things. But with my little circle of friends in my neighborhood, as a matter of fact, I just had a Zoom call yesterday with my child, one of my childhood friends on Peltier Street in Montreal, wow. in Longueuil, 
I moved there when I was 13 and I'm 55, right? Yeah. So when he, all he remembered was the good times and how we were close. And, and uh, so it just, so, so for you, how did you make your way? How did you find your sense of belonging as a brown girl in Saskatoon? Maybe like you, I didn't overthink it or think about it um, because we weren't encouraged to by society. I grew up singing, um, like taking vocal lessons, and we practiced in the basement, our choir of a retirement home for Catholic nuns. I did Christmas concerts. I sang at more churches. I've been in more churches than most Christians, frankly, singing. <laughs> I sang hymns. I sang Christmas, traditional Christmas carols, right? Like, not like, you know, We Wish You a Merry Christmas or even Oh Come All You Faithful, the deep, deep religious ones. And I think, you know, I, I like that. I liked kind of having my feet in many worlds. So, you know, my Girlfriends, my three best girlfriends, um, I have been friends with since uh, I was five. I'm 40, how old am I? 48 now. We're still really, really super close. The three white girls are super tall, white women, I should say. They're super tall. They always have been. I was this short little brown kid wearing red tights with brill cream in my hair because my mom used to work nights. My dad used to get us ready. Love you, dad, but wow. Um, and I always say, you know, yeah, people made the, oh, your house smells like curry jokes. And I didn't dare take any Indian food to school for lunch. In fact, I wouldn't eat Indian food as a kid. And I don't know if that was a conscious decision of mine as a child. I just said I didn't like it. But I look back at it and think, wow, like, I love when I send my kids with their school to lunch. And I say, oh, what do the other kids eat? You know, my kids are eating a bagel. And the other kids are like, they brought, you know, Japanese food. I think that's so amazing. I think it says, look, I'm not Pollyannish. I know we have a lot of work to do, a lot, and a lot more than I think a lot of people assume we do. But we have come some distant, sure. distance. So, you know, growing up was pretty cool. I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago. This is when Donald Trump, who's then president, um, uh, said to a, a few U.S. women politicians of color that they should go back where they come from. Remember I recall, yeah. of course. And it really burned me, Stephen. Like, I was really pissed off about it. Yeah. No, I hear you. And I wrote an article about my remembering that happened to me. And I like literally pause there because it's, it's, it's more difficult for me to talk about now within the cur current context in which we live than ever before. But I wrote a story um, saying how that felt. So I was a little kid. I was walking up a hill in my neighborhood with my best friend. And I remember exactly what I was wearing because when someone called me, you know, the derogatory P word and told me to go back to where I'd come from, I didn't know what to do. Like, I was just a kid. And I was like, oh, God, I hope no one heard that. It was just me and my best friend. I looked down. I know what I was wearing. I was wearing, I can, I wish I still had this red shirt because I <laughs> weirdly am attached to it, I guess. Um, and it was never spoken of. She never said anything. I never said anything. But isn't that interesting? It is. That, like, so many decades later, a similar thing is said to someone else. And it just ate away at me. And when I wrote this article, you know, I went on to describe um, the times where people said things to me, uh, strangers, sometimes people I knew, paper cuts, they don't hurt as individual things. But 100 paper cuts, one over another, is a deep cut. Absolutely. I have a um, similar story I, I write in my book about um, when Roots came out. So for those of you who are younger, it was a seminal show about mm -hmm. uh, Alex Haley wrote 1977 and then biggest TV audience of all time for that time. And and uh, people always talk about how great. And I remember back then I'm going, I hated it, right? And I go, of course, it's a beautiful story. It was the first time I really understood the the story of, of slaves coming to America and the struggle and all that. But what struck me was getting off the bus 
the day, the first, I think it was a four-night series. And the first night, and I, and I get into the schoolyard, and all I hear is, hey, Kunta Kinte, hey, Kunta Kinte, right? And, uh, you know, others were, you know, me, you're Toby. And, and I was just going, like, I was confused a little bit, and then I was angry, and then I, but my sense was that, like, of course they were attacking me, but they, it was just like, now I hated the movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Instead of, like, understanding <laughs> that, what they were doing was out of ignorance or potentially not out of ignorance. Exactly, yeah. right? So, but I still, when I think of that, I still... And as have you, you met, watched Roots? I, sense? Like, I can have, you? I have not. I have not. And it struck me, right? And even now thinking about it, I remember that little boy getting off that bus, right? So I know what you're talking about. Um, well, Pia, I just want to shift it up a little bit. And uh, I know this was a, a moment in time for millions around the world, in Canada, United States, and around the globe in regards to the reckoning uh, following the the killing of George Floyd in the Murder. United States. Exactly. And, um, and, you know, for me, it was a moment of also awakening, right? I had this personal story inside of my lived experience, and we've touched a little bit on it, I'm sure. I know we've talked a bit before. Um, and... A lot of, and that awakening of, of questioning and answers and all that, what, what happened with you? How did it make you feel? This is a little bit uncomfortable for me right now, Steve, and I'll tell you why. Because as I sit across a table from a black man who's about to talk about how the murder of another black man in North America felt, I don't think it really matters how I feel. In some ways. And I'm not trying to be generous by saying that. Your and my lived experiences overlap in many ways, but they are vastly different. I am not black. Yeah. I might have, I don't know, somewhat more affinity um, and connection, although I use that word in quotes, to a black experience only because there are overlaps in terms of getting the racial slurs and racism. But it is vastly different. Sure. And I'm not, again, not trying to do that to be generous. It's just so many people ask me how I felt uh, when George Floyd was killed. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Well, I think part of the, I think the context of it is, you know, especially now we're using this word BIPOC, right? Yeah. Black, Indigenous, people of color, which, yeah. right? And I know for a fact that many people don't make that distinction that you're making right? In terms of black and people of color many times, yeah. right? And so I, I'm more interested, I guess, in the reaction because you're, you know, obviously someone in the public eye, you're a journalist, but you're also a person in the just community. Just a person. Exactly, just a person. And, but it sure spurred a lot of conversations. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's important for people to understand a little bit about the neighborhood in which you and I find ourselves. Um, it's wonderful. And it's uh, progressive. It is gentrifying, if not gentrified already. And it is white. Exactly. And so people who are non-white who live in this neighborhood, for the most part, there are exceptions, of course, are generally kids of immigrants, um, upper middle class. And so I don't pretend to speak for all racialized people or Indian people or Indian Her- people of Indian heritage or anyone else. And, and so I think that's really important. That's why it was so interesting when people called me, right? So how do you feel? So how did I feel? Well, how about that conversation? Thank you, Pia Chattopadhyay, 
Tune in next week for part two of my amazing conversation with Pia, where she'll tell us how the George Floyd murder impacted her personally and more of our back and forth on many aspects of systemic racism and its real impacts in our communities where we live. Thanks for listening to Black and White. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends. My book, Black and White, hits shelves on February 1st, and you can pre-order now on Amazon, Indigo, Barnes & Noble, and you can also find me on Twitter at DorseyBNW. I think I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, and also Instagram. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcast. Special thanks to Ian Douglas, our engineer, producer extraordinaire and sign designer Noel Fouts, and executive producers Gerardo Orlando and my old friend David Allen Moss. I'm Stephen Dorsey reminding all of us, be better, do better, so we can all live better together. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.